Holy Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come here to the to the end and to reflect on what we've done um, in this last year and a half of of teaching and two and a half years of of uh, time. We pray that today that that we would be focused and that together we might think about the themes of Genesis and what it means and why it was and is worth studying. As always, we pray that truth would be spoken, and if there's any error spoken, that it would be corrected gently and in love. For it is in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Okay, at the beginning of the climax of the movie, The Princess Bride, um, Wesley has just been resuscitated. And having missed a good part of the movie while he was mostly dead, um, I know that some of you haven't seen this movie. That's okay. He's He's been mostly dead for a while, so he has a lot of questions. And Wesley says, Who are you? Are we enemies? Why am I on this wall? Where's Buttercup? And Inigo says, Let me explain. <laughs> and he says, No, there's too much. Let me set some up. Buttercup is to marry Humperdinck in little less than half an hour. So all we have to do is get in, break up the wedding, steal the princess, make our escape, and after I kill Count Rugen. Wesley says, that doesn't leave much time for dilly-dallying. <laughs> so we're kind of in that situation. If, even if I don't dilly-dally, uh, we don't really have time to explain the entire book of Genesis today. And so we're going to sum up, and you will have to help me. Back in February of 2019, when we started, um, I had you read the book of Genesis during the week. I asked you to do it at one sitting. I don't know if everybody did it at one sitting, but um, I think most people had actually read it through. And I said, so now that you've read it, what do you think it's about? Um, good general question. And that's a good general question for us again. Um, now that we've studied it and we've done the hard work of going through the whole thing, um, even if you weren't here for every single day, um, what's it about? Don't don't tell me the stories. Tell me the what's it about? I'll argue with you, Matt. I think that's so what I thought. Said thing right over. Anyway, in the beginning, God. No apologetics, no explanation. In the beginning, God. It's by Him. It's for Him, and it's all His. Which sounds a little cold, unless you know God. And knowing the character of God, that's not cold. And I'm glad to have it's all His, and it's all by Him, and it's all for Him. That's good. I like that. That's, and wow, super concise too. Not unusual for me. <laughs> Not usual for John. Not only just about God, but His plan and His working. Okay, out. and His plan. It's a, it's God, but then it's also His plan. His working out of His plan. And His working out of His plan. And Jonathan alluded to something else, right? Which was the only if you know God. So there's the relationship part of it too, isn't there? Anything else? You'd want to throw in there? It's it's all in Genesis, right? I mean, it's Genesis is foundational. It's, it really is. Um, when we look at a narrative and we try to figure out what it's about, then sometimes we do reduce it to, to um, a bunch of propositions, right? Um, and and that might not be the best way of doing it. After all, we we got it as a narrative from God because. Well, because why? He wanted us to know him. He wanted us to know him, 
And, and we got it as a narrative because that's what he wanted. That's what God wanted. He wanted Genesis. He wanted to tell us a story. And it is this complicated, long story. And that's the way he decided to get, give it to us. And so part of our submission to God is submission to that. Um, if we could list out the 20 points of Genesis, like the 20 theological points of Genesis, which you probably could find a website devoted to that, that wouldn't be as good as Genesis. Genesis is designed by God's design to be this narrative. So we, we submit to it by looking through it. But as we come to the end, having looked through it, we have to sort of think about what the themes are. So if I had to choose a single theme for all of Genesis, to run through all of Genesis, I guess it would be uh, the idea of God's sovereignty. Okay. And so I start with that, and I've really got four themes that I want to talk about if I can today. The first one is sovereignty. So what, what do we mean by sovereignty? Well, Okay, he's in in control. Um, the, the idea of sovereignty, and I wrote down here, like all suitcases and shopping bags, um, can have a lot, sometimes too much stuff put into it. Okay, and so I'm not really trying to adopt the the whole um, set of Calvinist theology that goes with the idea of sovereignty. One famous theologian wrote this because he thought that people weren't preaching sovereignty enough, he says, the sovereignty of God, what do we mean by this expression? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high, doing according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? To say that God is sovereign is to declare as he is the almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purposes, or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleased as pleases him best. To say that God, God is sovereign which is hard to say after you've said it ten times, is to declare that he is the only potentate, the king of kings and the lord of lords. Such is the God of the Bible. And I think that's, you know, th that's right, but that's not what I'm trying to do right now. Really, basically, it's who, who this. That, who do you think? Who, who was yeah, that? I want you to guess. I think you could guess. I'm not sure. Arthur Pink. No. Yeah. Okay. I, th I think that we can just reduce it to this. God rules. Okay, that's the idea. That, that I'm, with that idea, what have you seen in Genesis that indicates that God rules? And now you can tell me stories or short, briefly refer to stories, not tell me the whole thing. The Garden of Eden house, though. Yeah, but okay, that's too short. Um, what do you, how does that show you that God rules? God said it was. Well, that's the creation, but I think he's going for something else. What are you going for, Andrew? That he knew that he still asked Adam, where are you? Okay. Um, I was thinking that where you were going with that was was this, that, that God gave instruction, 
And when it wasn't followed, he, in an exercise of sovereignty, kicked them out. Right. So that would be one. The, the creation, the idea that he made everything, certainly. OK, there's judgment. Um, what else? When he says that would be implied that when he says something, he means it. Sure, sure. But he's I'm but the sovereignty, where is where yeah, do we get the sovereignty theme? Part of it in a way. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, my parent, well, I, I didn't want you to do that, but okay. I'm not going to follow up on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel, when they wanted to set themselves up, like they were doing something else with God. Okay, so the, there's this judgment idea, too, right? That God is sovereign and he has the right to judge what he has made. Catherine. Well, this just follows up on Adam. But, you know, he invests in uh, in Abraham, and Abraham screws up royally before they even get to the promised land. And then he invests in his son, and he screws up royally. It's <laughs> like he keeps, he's able to take all our big mess-ups and continue his plan. I, that to me is... Something. Okay, so that God can work his will without having to overrule the the screw ups of his of the actors, right? God, despite the fact that people make bad choices throughout Genesis, God still accomplishes his purposes. And of course that's been the really big part of the sovereignty theme at the end here, is we've seen um, you know, the the story of Joseph, right? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God accomplishes his good, even though the brothers um, intend evil. And I guess there's one more part of this that I, you don't, you didn't bring up, which is the, you've seen throughout the, the beginning, through all the patriarch stories, this idea that God is the God who's in control of fertility. And not only the making and then the, all the plants growing and animals growing, but also who's going to get pregnant and who will have children and when. Okay, so um, I think all of those things are there. But he isn't bound by human rules as far as who's going to like inheritance and all that type of thing. Okay. And maybe you right. Far ahead, but you can't separate his sovereignty from his love. Well, well, I, I know, and I think that I will come to that in a second. Yeah. He puts up with our garbage, our rebellion, because I was talking with John. He sees the end. He's already there at the end. Right. Right. And even in what we've just said, there's there's a couple of different thoughts that are packed into the idea of God's sovereignty. The first is that God has the right to rule. And the second is God has the ability to rule. Okay. And those aren't really the same thing. Um, sometimes a person could have the right to make a decision, but they just practically cannot enforce their decision. Um, and that, of course, in the world leads to all sorts of problems. We've seen God. How, does, how come God has the right to rule? Because he made it all and it's all his. Okay. Um, and then the, the ability to rule is also seen in the fact that he was able to make it and he is able to bring about the results that he wants. Again, I go to, I would say Isaac is a great example of this. 
Isaac eventually being born, but quite a long time, 25 years after God says, I'm going to give you lots of descendants and, and Abram's, you know, that's a tough 25 years for them, Abram and Sarai, because they're like, yeah, we're not seeing it, but God's able to do it and he does do it. Okay. Are there challenges to God's right to rule? In Genesis? Hmm? Men are futilely and yeah. attempt to usurp his authority. Okay, so many times the challenge is to God, but but give me one. Well, like Satan in the Garden of Eden. He came in there and he subtly deceived us. Okay, so, so Satan, but now, Satan being thwarted, it's not real obvious that Satan's thwarted in the serpent, is it? Um, because he does, he seems to, you know, foul things up quite a bit. Um, I think very quick in the book of Genesis. It's also very soon a promise that he will be. That's true. We'll get to that. There's, there's. What are some other examples of that suggest that maybe there is some opposition to God's rule? There, that's the one I was looking for. That's right, Sodom and Gomorrah, where it doesn't seem ultimately that that one's um, able to thwart God. I mean, the the in the garden, the and Satan, it's hard to quite see the end of that story because the end of that story is not going to come for sixty six books, right? So um, that one's hard. But Sodom and Gomorrah seems like pretty quickly God wins, right? Okay, he accomplishes um, that he puts down the rebellion. Joseph and his brothers. Joseph and his brothers. There's some resistance, though. That's a little harder. Right. Because you can't quite see that God says Joseph will be the one. It's not like that. You, although Joseph has the dream that says Joseph. Everybody's going to bow down to me. Isn't that really cool? You know, no, we don't think so. Um, th- still, that that one's a little harder. But Abraham and Sarah deciding Looks like we're not going to have any kids unless we do it this other way. So you take Hagar, right? The I, up the Tower of Babel where God told them to disperse, and they said, no, we're not going to do Yeah, we'll build a tower. Not not like the Sears Tower, but it was... They wanted to stay together. He told them to disperse. Yeah, that's right. And and he said, yeah, not going to happen. And so he, he overrules that, right? That's good. He doesn't keep them from re- rebelling, but he does keep them from succeeding. Okay. Sometimes it takes longer than other times. Um, Abraham re- repeatedly and then Isaac doing the same thing later saying, Oh, she's my sister. You know, thinks that that's a good idea. Well, that wasn't a very good idea. God eventually in each one of those situations overrules it by having the king go, I figured this out. She's not your sister. She's your wife. So, again, God is opposed, but God is victorious. Are there ever times when um, when it seems like God is ineffectual in his rule, where his his decision is not successful? Well, Jacob must have thought this must be the end. They thought they were probably about people they were about to die with the famine. With how, okay, how, how God's plans. This, this is it. This is. I thought the problem okay. was bigger than this. Okay, that's good. How about Potiphar's wife? Yeah, I mean, okay, person. okay. So she for Joseph personally, yeah. I mean, that's pretty big. 
I mean, by then we know it's, it's pretty big, right? Um, he, she falsely accuses Joseph, and I think she's pretty successful. She gets him thrown right into prison. Yeah. Um, it, but it turns out fairly quickly that we see how God triumphs over that. Catherine? Even at the very end of Genesis, after Joseph, the liaison with the Egyptians, dies, now the Israelites are all in Egypt. They're not in the promised land. Right. And a discouraging. That would be a lot discouraging. Um, although, remember, that was part of one of the reiterated promises to Abraham. Yeah. He says, and, you know, great nation, yeah, don't worry about it. It really is going to be a great nation. And they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. It's like, wait a second, go back to that part? Because I don't think that is a promise exactly, you know. Um, but right. Okay. Um, why does the narrator bring up the times when um, somebody opposes God's will? Why do we get that? Because God still does what he wants to do. Yeah, because what better way to show that, that God's going to do what he wants to do um, than to show that when people oppose him, while they have the absolute ability to oppose him, and in some sense they have the right because they have freedom to oppose him, it's not going to work to keep God from doing what he wants. You might be able to do what you want in opposition to God, all you have to do is look on the Internet or read the newspaper. You're going to see many examples of people doing what they want. But in the end, God is going to still get what he wants. He is still going to accomplish his purposes. So I, I put it like this. Um, Genesis has a lot to say about God as ruler, and it has a lot to say about the style of his rule, which is not exactly authoritarian, but it is successful. God is sovereign over the creation which he made. He has the right to rule, and even despite indications that his rule is opposed or ineffective, the power to do as he wills. So that's kind of what I think Genesis tells us about sovereignty. Though it would be better to read Genesis than to read that. Uh, yeah. I think the, the readers, I mean, for this is, us, the story is a little more abstract. We don't directly relate to these people as much. The readers, these would have been their ancestors and such, and these ones that they revered of, of, their, of their, their family line and their, their patriarchs and all this, that yes, God used them, but he also used, even though they messed up everything, God would still cared about them and still worked with them. Why, why would that be true for us now in the problems we're having in the land and everything? And right. That, that we should still trust in God, even though all this bad things are happening around us, and when we, when we mess up, we know we can still go, go back, turn back to God. Right. I don't know that that's exactly what I would put under the category of sovereignty, but it is certainly right. It's certainly there in Genesis. So the second theme that I would um, say within Genesis is the theme uh, that says uh, God is committed to redemption. Okay, so we again, we need to define terms. By redemption, redemption, I think, is a backward-looking word. Okay, redemption is the act of restoring something of value that has been damaged or has deteriorated. Okay, redemption is not an idea of making something good. That's a creation idea. But redemption <laughs> is the idea of something that was good has become bad or messed up or bent 
or many words you could use there, and it's being repaired. Okay, so restoration is another related word. So where's that theme in Genesis? Genesis 3.15. How? The one born will bruise Satan's head and Satan will bruise his heel. Okay. Well, it's, as, as, it's, as we said at the time, I think it's Derek Kidner says, um, it's the first glimmer of the gospel. So it's just a glimmer. I mean, it's just, um, but there is a redemptive, it is a redemption verse. Yeah. Billy. Um, Judah. Okay, so so Judah, of course, chooses to really be one of the worst towards Joseph. Not not just throw him in the pit, but let's sell him and get some money for him. Um, and he seems pretty hard-hearted there. It's better than killing him. It's better than killing him. It's better than killing him. Um, and then the the Incident with Tamar, which is what a way to explain that. Um, you're just like, mm, Judah's a, let's just skip Judah. Let's go on to somebody else. I, yeah, I think that's such a picture of redemption. And then. He continues to work with these people. So, so that, but then by the end of the Tamar chapter, which is what, 37 maybe? Um, I can't remember, 35 or 37. Um, he says, I was wrong. I was wrong. She was more right than I was. Um, and then by the time that he's confronted in Egypt, he's, he, you can see he's repented of the part about selling Joseph. And when he finally sees Joseph, you know, it's, it's, he's overcome. So there is this redemptive story of Judah where he really has been shown to do these terrible things and not to be a, a very honorable person. And then he has repented and is restored or redeemed. Anything else? That's the whole story of the whole Bible, right? There's a special significance for Judah, of course. Since he will go back to, to, yeah, he will be the, we'll get to that in a second. Um, Jacob, when he comes back to Esau. Oh, that's good too. Jacob, Esau has every reason to, to take Jacob out, and Jacob knows that. That's why he ran away at the first place. Remember, his mom said, look, when when your dad dies, I don't want you to get killed by Esau because Esau had said and she knew. Apparently, this was the thing Esau said a lot. As soon as dad is dead, Jacob is dead. I'm going to take him out. And so when he runs away and he comes back and he's got 12 sons and he's got four wives and all that, then um He's going to meet Esau and remember all that stuff with the sending all the animals ahead and oh those are gifts for you. Does but, he bow down like? Oh yeah, times? yeah. And but Esau um, doesn't kill him and there's a there's a redemption of the relationship. Yeah, that's good. Um, well the the hint the the hint of redemption in three fifteen is played out. In 4 through 11, chapters 4 through 11, when you begin to see this line of the promise, that there's there's always one in each generation that seems like God is, has picked. Adam to Seth to Noah to Shem, I'm skipping generations, to Terah, and then to Abraham. 
Okay, and then when we get to two, 12 through 21, which is mainly Abraham, um, we read in 12.1, of course, the thing that I always read, right, Billy? Um, Go from your country and your king kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then there's many things that seem to happen that jeopardize those promises in the next verses, in the next chapters. And so immediately afterwards, um, there's a famine. They run to Egypt. They say, it's my wife, it's my sister. I think it's the sister, he says there. Um, and Pharaoh takes Sarai into the harem. And of course, uh, the reader should be going, that's going to be a problem. Because, because if she gets pregnant, whose child will it be? We won't know. And will that really be, that's a big mess. And, but God fixes the mess. And, and actually Abram and Sarai become richer because of this, oddly enough. And then in 13, the wealth of Abram and Lot causes problems so that they can't live in the same area. Just for one thing, the sheep and the goats are going to eat all this grass up and so forth. And so they have to separate and, and, Abram graciously lets Lot choose, and it sounds like, oh, that's going to be a mess. Look, look, Abraham got the bad part. Well, no, it didn't turn out that way, did it? Right? So, and then the, the, the war of the, do you remember the war of the five kings and the four kings, right? Keterleomer and all that stuff. Um, well, that seems like that's going to be a problem because being in a war zone is always bad, right? Almost always bad, unless you're selling arms, I guess. And, and so um, that's bad, and Lot is taken away, and Abraham has to. But that all works out too, because God is is sovereign, which we had before. But it's also a redemptive thing. Um, we have the anyway. We have lots of these things that look like it's all going to go wrong, culminating in what event? Isaac's finally been born, and culminating in what event that makes it look like it's all going to go wrong? Sacrifice Isaac. Yes, the binding of Isaac. Um, that that whole story, you're like, no, 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 this is a mess. This is not going to work. This is not right. You've got to save Isaac. My goodness, that's what it's all about. And of course, God does do that. There is a so great maybe, redemption. Maybe the first readers would have known since they were the Yeah, yeah, I know that. But I'm 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 saying if you were literally reading it, it does say in Hebrews that Abraham knew. Or he believed anyway. Well, I mean, I would just say the, the, the readers. I mean, the, the first time. I mean, you know, even the very first ones, they they knew they were descendants of Isaac. So nope. you're right. Like, you're right. This gets this gets worked out. I'm not sure how it's going to get worked out, but this is going to get worked out. That's right. If Isaac's <laughs> we can trust God to accomplish His purposes, not always our purposes, even in the face of human disobedience, even our own disobedience. Accomplish right? His purpose in His way. In his way, right, right, in his way, in his way. The the faith of Abraham at that point always amazes me because he doesn't have the, the scriptures like we have, at least that, you know, we're, you know, we see all this history and we can know that God keeps his promise and that he's going to do what he says he does. But, you know, up to the point of Isaac, there's 
Yeah. It doesn't really seem like there's a lot about, right. you know, what does Abraham know about God? And the little he does know, he really, really trusts him. He, 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 well, the, really in 12, it's amazing that he trusts him there. Because at that yeah. point, we don't even know that he has any experience of God. We don't see why he would listen. Go walk 700 miles. Okay. Yeah. Because I'll give you a lot of stuff at the end. What stuff? Well, I'll show you. Um, and then with Isaac, like, how, how did he trust God for that? That's amazing. It really is. There's, there's hinges. We don't have you know, actual stated, but we know that a lot of older cultures, there was a lot of passed down orally. So the, the, the ones sure. that had known sure. God throughout you know, well, down the line. We, we, we would assume that there was an oral yeah. tradition that Abraham had heard, although, of course, in chapter 12, he's coming from, you know, Chaldea, right? He's coming from Ur of the Chaldees, right? Okay, well, anyway, so this second theme might be summed up as this. The God who created all that we see is committed to repair and redeem that which has been repeatedly marred by his rebellious creatures. Third theme, because I only down to 10 minutes or something, like if I care, if I stop on time. <laughs> God selects nations and also individuals. Um, again, I don't want all the theological baggage of election at this point. I just simply want to focus on the idea of selection or choosing. Obviously, in Genesis, I won't even ask it as a question. Um, God chooses Noah to build the ark. He chooses Abram and Sarai. He chooses Isaac. He chooses Jacob. Then he chooses Joseph and Judah, which is surprising to us, right? He chooses chooses. Joseph to be the deliverer for the nation and to get the double blessing. He chooses Judah to be the line of the promise and the the royal line. Um, but he doesn't seem to have personally like the way he did with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, you're you're my special one. He doesn't seem to have that that conversation. He with, with he, he speaks he speaks to them different ways, right? But he does have it with. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph gets a lot of dreams. Um, Judah has life events that help him understand, right? Um, I'll skip over reading Romans 9, which is interesting in this, but all of this choosing brings about the continuation of the nation through which God would work out the rest of the Old Testament and from whom the Messiah would come, okay? And we got that. Um, just right there a couple weeks ago um, when we read the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people which has always been interpreted by um, rabbis and Christian commentators as messianic so it's something like this the God who created all that we see selected Israel to be his people despite their many failings and repeated Rebellions. He actually creates Israel and selects them. So, fourth theme, and this I'll just do more quickly, but because you guys have been touching on it, God voluntarily reveals His character um, by showing us how God works. Genesis shows us a lot about who God is. For example, God is a God who made everything. He's Personal. He's meaning he's a person. I once, when I was in college, had a, I think Chris, uh, Campus Crusade had a survey, like a, 
they wanted to ask people to kind of get some understanding of what they knew about the Bible and so forth. And they said, do you believe in a personal devil? And I went, no, because I thought that what they meant was one that, like, you do you have a devil sitting on your shoulder? Like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> but what they meant was, do you believe that Satan is a person? So I should have said yes. And I guess they knew, well, when we get to the devil part, Al will have to be instructed. Um, I also decided that when they said, what book has in the New Testament has the most theology, um, they, which of Paul's epistles has the most theology, I decided to go just write Corinthians, thinking, well, there's two books. I mean, they have more. <laughs> Romans is the right answer there. but Okay, so. Um, okay, so the third third one, God interacts with and is concerned for his creation. That's It didn't have to be that way. God could go, oh, what a mess. Forget it. In Exodus, if we do Exodus, you'll see that there's at least a point or two where God suggests that maybe it would just be better to start over. Yeah. God is the source of the fertility, which we see around us. If you're mowing your lawn, that was God, um, because it just grows and grows. Everything grows. God is righteous, but that means he's a God of judgment, too. So he ha- there is a right, and it is what God says it is. And so he will, he will judge. Um, the next one I put down is God is unmanageable. I once preached a sermon on that. You, you can't say, well, this is the way God will do this. No, you have no idea. God will do things that are so weird. Um, the whole, the whole binding of Isaac is a great example of that. Well, that doesn't seem like a thing. That God would do, but it is. Who would have thought a shepherd would be king? Who would think of that? But not in Genesis, right? But <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, you're right. God keep what one thing God kept on doing was saying, nope, it's the second side. Nope, it's it's the um, twin that came out second. Nope, you know, despite the fact that he's such a jerk, right? God is patient. The fact that God reveals himself at all shows that he's what? He's gracious, right? We, he didn't have to explain any of this. God graciously reveals himself as the one who made all that there is and rules over it in righteousness as he chooses. So that kind of comes back to the sovereignty thing. When we, at the beginning I said, when we ask what a narrative means, <clears throat> we're tempted to come up with theological or philosophical propositions. That's what this, we, we actually have been in a book club for 26 years, and um, the book we read the last month, um, somebody said, oh, I think it means this, because it's she's promoting this nihilistic, and and it was all about how nothing means anything. Well, he, he had kind of jumped into taking the entire narrative of this novel and reducing it to this philosophical proposition. Well, we don't want to do that because God gave it to us as a narrative. It, the analogy that, that works for me, if you're hiking in the Great Smoky Mountains, okay, you can see what God has done and you go, this is amazing. And this is, look at, look at that and look at that and this, this vista or those animals or look down at that flower or these little bugs. 
But we don't do that. That's not the way we just we don't stop there. We get the we get maps and photographs and we want contour maps. And when John Keane was taking the kids on hikes, I would make these maps that would show the climb and elevation and how many miles between here and there. And and if you've got all the maps and you've got the field guide to the birds and plants of the Smokies and you memorized all that stuff, you still wouldn't know the park the way you would if you hiked in it. And even though you might hike in it for a week, you wouldn't know it. You could live the whole your whole life in there. Isn't there a famous quote, the map is not the territory? I forget where that comes from. There, there is a famous quote like that, yeah. So um, so if, if we thought about which is more true, to say that God is sovereign or to say, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, um, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives, that story is even more important and more significant to understanding God's sovereignty than to, to the long quote I read by Arthur Pink. I think he would agree to that. I'm not trying to set him up as a terrible person because of reading that complicated quote. Um, it, that story is the way that God decided to show you these things about himself. So, so when I get to the end, if and Billy might have something more to say, but um, when I get to the end, I say that if you remember something from all of what we've done, it should be this. God has given us his word in a theological narrative of Genesis. All the explanations of what Genesis is about and the theology that has been built on it is nothing compared to the thing itself. The inspiration is in the text. It is not in the idea that we draw out of it, which is why you know this because you've heard this before, which is why we are so committed to the idea of teaching texts verse by verse and so forth. It's not the only way you could do it. It's not the, it's useful sometimes to look at the map. Okay. It's useful. It's good. And the maps are, not perfect, but they're useful. Sometimes it's good to do that. But basically, what we want to do is take you on a hike. Okay. So when the, when the hiker can draw the map of the trails in the forest and make a list of all the plants and animals, he is not finished with the park. He has just begun to prepare himself for a lifetime of living in it. So, I guess we're not finished with Genesis today. In some ways, we're just starting with Genesis. This is a, this is something you can come back to over and over. You can live here. You can live in this book, not just Genesis, but the whole book. And that's, I think, what God wants us to do. So let's pray. So God, as we are at the end of our specific study of Genesis in 2019 through 2021. We're at the end, but we're just at the beginning, and we know that. We're at the beginning of the instruction that you're giving us about who you are and what you want from us 
and what you're committed to do and why we can trust you. You're just beginning to show us your redemption of the marred world in which we live. I pray that we will we will submit to you and we will continue to try to learn and that we will continue to listen to your word in your word that we might understand more completely. We thank you for Jesus Christ whose death completes our redemption. And we look forward to the time when you will complete the redemption of all that you made. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.